Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's guest is Brigadier General R. Scott Dingle, the Director of Plans, Operations, and Training for the U.S. Army Medical Command, also known as the MedCom G357. General Dingle has had an extraordinary career, including attendance at some of the Army's most respected training schools, battalion and brigade commands, and combat tours in Afghanistan and Iraq. I really enjoyed hearing General Dingle's career story, but I found his lessons for leaders at the end of the interview particularly striking. He uses a clever metaphor to talk about the need for leaders to never lose their bearing, to never forget they are always in the spotlight, and to never forget they are always part of a team. This podcast is being released just in time for Independence Day weekend, and it seems appropriate to reflect on the career of a dedicated military leader and combat veteran as we remember that freedom is not free. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Don't forget to leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. Also, you can find us on Twitter at the handle at HealthLF. That's at H-E-A-L-T-H-L-F. Thanks for listening. And here is Brigadier General Scott Dingle. Welcome to The Forge, General Dingle. Mark, thank you for the, you and The Forge having me with you guys. It's an honor to be, uh, be on The Forge. You earned your bachelor's degree from Morgan State University in sociology and English. Why did you choose to go to Morgan State, and what drew you to sociology and English? My decision to go to Morgan State was really a last-second decision. Uh, initially, I was going to Syracuse University to play football. I was on track athlete in high school, and I was going to play football at Syracuse on football scholarship. My senior year, I had a knee injury. I tore my medial collateral ligament and then re again during that same season and then again during track season. And so at that point, I decided that I, I did not want to go to Syracuse to re-injure my knee. My confidence wasn't there to play uh, major Division One football. So at the last second, I decided to go to Morgan State University, who had a huge uh, track program, and I, I was also a track athlete, so I decided to go there to run track to try to rehabilitate my knee and then see if I would go back to play football. And Morgan State was in Maryland. It wasn't too far from home, and yet it wasn't too close, so I selected Morgan State University. Okay, and what drew you to sociology and English as your majors? I, I Initially, I wanted to... My, my dad was a law enforcement officer, and initially I was going father's footsteps and to get into law. I initially wanted to be a lawyer, and so thus the sociology base and the English minor was my focus to lay the foundation to go to law school, you know, after I got my degree. Okay. So I selected sociology. Okay. And what drew you to military service, and how did you get involved with Army ROTC? That's the a living testimony to my uh, recently deceased father, uh, Raymond I. Dingle. Uh, the, the power of a father's will is what resulted in me getting the ROTC. I had no desire to get an ROTC growing up. My father was a retired 
tech sergeant from the Air Force and okay. also retired from the U.S. Okay. Police. And growing up, he always emphasized military service and said, you know, I want you to go to West Point. You know, I want you to go to West Point. And he was pushing West Point my whole um, high school years. I was recruited as a football athlete. And I said, Dad, I'm not going to West Point. You know, <laughs> and VM came to recruit. And I was talking to the VMI coach. It was right before they transitioned from all male school uh, to females, to add in females. And talking to the coach and, you know, my dad was there and he says, look, VMI, that's, that's just as good as West Point. I want you to go to VMI. Okay. And talking to the coach and, I, again, I had no intention of going to VMI and I asked him, I said, do you have women at the school? And and he said, nope. I said, no, I'm not going to an all-male <laughs> school. I'm not going. Can't do it. And the coach was like, no, we got cheerleaders and the school's right there. You know, he said it's integrated. We're getting ready to switch over. And I really just didn't want to go to a military school. And I said, nope, I'm not going. My dad blew a gasket. He was so upset with me. And he said, you'd be throwing away opportunity. You know, being a commissioned officer is an honor to serve your country. And I said, Dad, look, I'll make a deal with you. I said, let me go to the school that I that I want and I promise you I'll take ROTC. So I made a promise to him, and that's what got me to ROTC. No kidding. Okay. And so you, you received your commission through ROTC. At what point did you decide uh, it, you wanted to go on active duty? So I, I went to Morgan uh, on track and running track on track scholarship, and a few schools were still recruiting me to play football. And so I left Morgan State and went to Frostburg State University in Frostburg, Maryland, to test out my knee if it could hold up. Mm-hmm. And with the then transfer to Penn State to finish playing football with my quarterback, who you know was trying to get me up there. Went to Frostburg, uh, did very well. Did not do ROTC there. I played it at one semester, had a very good year. And my intent was to go to Penn State transfer, but at the time. You know, again, a, a young college student in love, and my wife was my damn my girlfriend was at Morgan, so she couldn't transfer to Penn State. Saying, "Scotty, you're going on scholarship. I don't have the money to go to Penn State." Sure. And so, Morgan was also recruiting me. So, love brought me back to Morgan State, uh-huh. and I came back to Morgan State and got in the ROTC program, which kind of led me to decided to, you know, decided to make a career or rather a family decision based on a career in the military. And I said, uh, I got to a point my junior year, my senior year, I said, well, you know, I, I got to take care of my, my, my wife and my family and there's no better way to do it than uh, coming into the military. And I decided to come into the military. So you had decided while you were in RTC earlier on that, that this was maybe even going to be a career. That early you had decided that. Well, it wasn't that early. It really was later. Okay. I... As I was going through ROTC, the thing that I discovered, being a football and track athlete in college, the majority of my time was there. And so even I was not the best ROTC cadet, you know, my my peers will tell you, um, (laughs) but I wasn't the worst because I was just always busy. You know, Scotty was either, you know, playing football, running track, and I was a, you know, a standout athlete. And 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 my my PMS professor of military science at the time would say, Scotty, you know you're a natural leader. You know I just need you to stay in the program because that's what the military is about. And so he he was probably one of my first mentors that really would try to encourage me that ROTC and leadership is a natural fit for me. And he would just not let me throw in the towel even when I wanted to throw in the towel. You know because I didn't have the time. And so. Nice. Um, that, that, and it just you know one thing led to another, and 
again, I, I said, okay, I'm going in the military, you know, based on that, that input and mentorship. Now, you were commissioned as a Medical Service Corps officer. Was this something you asked for, or was it a surprise? It, it was a surprise. Okay. I initially was going uh, MP. I was going in the military police as a reserves. Again, going back to my father and the Criminology and Law mm. Foundation. The, um, and so as I was going MP reserves, you know, my initial sights was on trying to play professional football. Oh. And so when things started to, you know, get out of line with between me and my coach, you know, we had some friction points there and me going football and spending time practicing, getting ready. I decided to go on active duty while I was a, while I was a full scholarship football player. Mm-hmm. And so... Making that decision, we switched. I had to redo my accessions packet and put in for active duty, and it came back Medical Service Corps again, which was a total surprise because it was tough to get into Medical Service Corps in okay. 1988. Okay. I've had, I've had Colonel David Bitterman on the show previously, but for listeners who haven't heard his, his interview, can you briefly explain what is the Medical Service Corps and what does a Medical Service Corps officer do? The, the Medical Service Corps is a part of the Army Medical Department, so we deal with health care, and it's a wide diversity of medical administrative. So when you talk about the medical administrators, that kind of is a large lion's share of the Medical Service Corps, but we're comprised of the administrative, the scientific, and other specialties ranging from management and other support elements to Army medicine. It could range from healthcare administrators, operations officers, medical logistics, healthcare comptrollers, personnelists, microbiologists, aeromedical evacuation officers, and on and on. But those medical specialties that are not the physicians, um, that are not the nurses, that are not the dis- not, not the uh, the dentists, are the healthcare providers. We are the the administrators that again are the cornerstone to Army medicine and healthcare. So you were commissioned in, in 1988. What was your first assignment on active duty after you did your officer basic course? Uh, my first assignment was a platoon leader. I was in the Ford Support Medical Company, and it was as an ambulance platoon leader in the 194th Separate Armor Brigade in the 75th Ford Support Battalion. And can you, for people who are not familiar with, with those terms, what's an armored brigade and a support battalion, and, and what does an ambulance platoon leader do in that in that organization? Uh, Army Brigade is, again, one of the, the Army's operational tactical units that basically deal with combat, so made up of armored vehicles or tanks, very large formation. The support battalions are the support assets that help provide the support to soldiers in combat. In this case, we're a medical company, and so the medical company, we provided the medical combat service support or combat health support to all of those war fighters, armor, infantrymen, and so forth out in, uh, on a battlefield. My, my specific position was initial was as an ambulance platoon leader, and that means that I had ambulances, tracked vehicles, because it was an armored brigade, so I had armored ambulances that provided the evacuation for anybody that's injured in combat or on the battlefield, and that was my responsibility as an ambulance platoon leader. Is this a typical first job for a, for a young Medical Service Corps officer? It is. Normally, a, a Medical Service Corps officer as a second lieutenant can find themselves as a platoon leader, and it could be in a medical company as an ambulance platoon leader or a treatment platoon leader. The treatment platoon 
does the actual oversight of the treatment of a casualty once he evacuated to the hospital itself, or he could be in a medical platoon that has each of those elements on a smaller element or a smaller basis as a battalion aid station in an infantry battalion. Okay. And what was it like transitioning to active duty and and kind of really doing, really being an officer now? You, you had gone through ROTC. My experience is ROTC does a pretty good job of preparing cadets to become officers and work in combat units. But what was it, what was it like? What was the, what was most surprising about, you know, really doing it and really doing the things you had trained for? It was an awesome experience. I had a tremendously great experience transitioning from college to an active duty medical service corps officer. And the reason I say that is because in, in my mind at that time, it was still the same thing as almost as in being a college athlete because um, I was so used to you know being a captain of the team or uh, whatever it may be dealing with a teammate and and building teams and understanding the plays and the camaraderie of being a college athlete was the same thing that I found in the military. Now I found myself as a platoon leader. It was the same thing. I'm the I'm the captain of that platoon, the leader. We have teammates, and it was about camaraderie, and we had a mission, and we had plays that we had to run, and and it, the army is physical too, and so the the PT and you know all those team building events that we would do as a platoon and a company and a battalion. I mean, it was just a great experience and a lot of fun. How many people were you responsible for uh, at that time? Uh, my platoon, initially the ambulance platoon, we had about 38 personnel in my platoon. Wow. Okay. Did you find mentors in your first units? And if so, who were they? And not necessarily by name, my, but by, by position, perhaps. My, my very first, uh, my mentor in my first unit was first and foremost my platoon sergeant. So when you get to your first assignment as a platoon leader, the senior NCO in the platoon is your platoon sergeant, and, and that is normally the, one of the closest and first relationships that a platoon leader has because, again, brand new into the United States Army, the platoon sergeant is the senior person member in that platoon, normally anywhere from you know 10 to 20 years of active duty service, and then here comes this young brand new lieutenant platoon leader that comes in. And so they, when the relationship is, is connecting and clicking, that becomes your first mentor. In my case, my very first mentor was my platoon sergeant as well as my company first sergeant. My company first sergeant, when we first met, and after you know the first month or so, and he saw my, my leadership style and my competitive edge that I would have or that drive, so to speak, my company first sergeant pulled me in and said, you know, hey there, Lieutenant Dingle, you got potential. You know, I mean, I'm going to teach you. You're going to be all right. And so he pulled me in and started mentoring me and never forgotten any of those lessons from him or my platoon sergeant. What kind of lessons did they teach you? What kind of things did you learn from them? Can you give an example? Oh, yes. Leadership, leadership. You know, that as a platoon leader, as a second lieutenant, um, as an officer, uh, as a soldier, that we first and foremost have to, to, to set the standards in everything we do. That, that we are, are in a fishbowl, so to speak, and that those soldiers and their families are depending on us, and that the scope of responsibility that, and mantle that I was carrying, that I had to carry it and run a race with, with excellence in everything that I do. And as I did that, that I'm not to do it by myself, that it wasn't about me, myself, or my ego, but it was about me, my platoon sergeant, and the team. You know, again, once again, reinforcing that team 
concept, which I'd already just loved from being a collegiate athlete. And so those just, you know, played tremendous impact on my, my leadership style itself, you know, through the rest of my career, even to today. So I'm assuming you had like a three or four year commitment when you first came on active duty. At what point did you say, you know, this is kind of fun. I'm going to stick it out for a while and stay past that. I, I think it was, you know, it was my, my second assignment. You know, when I when I went from the platoon leader to Fort Eustis, and then the same time Desert Storm, Desert Shield was kicking off, and then just watching the the esprit de corps of of fellow soldiers, service members, and civilians rallying around, you know, this thing called Desert Storm, Desert Shield. You know, it was it was new to to me and to a lot of my peers. And again, I I was able to watch the a camaraderie, esprit de corps, and a team concept, even as soldiers were deploying for combat. And and I just thought that that was one of the most uh, admirable and honorable things that, that any American could do in service to their nation. And so at that point, I think I was sold. I said, this is it. So shortly thereafter, you were a company commander at a hospital and at, a, at Fort Eustis, and then you were a company commander again with the 3rd Infantry Division, I believe it was? That's correct. Okay, so company command is, is often a crucible for young officers. Why is company command so important in Army culture? And what did you learn during your two experiences that helped shape your future career? Company command is like that, that, that first, you know, where the rubber meets the road thing of, of, of leadership in the military when it comes to the empowerment and having the uniform code of military justice, which means you have the power to to implement and instill justice, punishment, in response to violations to laws, regulations, and et cetera, which controls and impacts the lives of soldiers and their families. So as a company commander, now having the, the, the legal authority to not just only lead, but also to hold the, the unit and the organization to a standard as directed by you know, the Army command policy is just an awesome position to be in. And and as a young officer, you know, as a captain, you have now taken all of your leadership tenets that you've learned as a platoon leader and in those developmental positions. And then, and, you know, seven times out of ten or eight times out of ten, most officers want to, want to strive to be that leader of that company. It's like that red badge of courage of uh, being a company commander leading and developing and training a company. You know, and again, that was just a phenomenal experience, which is why we drive towards that. Both of my company commands, I had one in a hospital at Fort Eustis, Virginia, and then my second one was in Germany in 3rd Infantry Division. And again, the, the lessons learned, you know, with, with me, it's always leadership lessons. It's, it's always a reinforcing thing going back to what my first, you know, first sergeant taught me that first unit that it's about building the team and mission accomplishment, leadership, getting us all together. And as we do that, that we're, we're supposed to lead and soar like eagles. They always used to tell me that, you know, we, we had two options in leadership positions like company command and everything that we do. And they would say, you know, LT, you could either, you know, walk with the turkeys or you could soar with the eagles. <laughs> you know, as a leader, soar with the eagles. Don't you walk with these knuckleheads and these bad people that are that also 
you will find and run into. And so that, that has just been some tenets that have just stuck with me and lessons that I've learned, which always goes back to leadership and being a, um, a humble servant leader in every position, every capacity that, that I enter. After your time as a company commander, you did a stint as a medical planner in the 3rd Infantry Division, and then you went back to Fort Sam Houston, the home of the Army Medical Department, where you were an instructor, and then went back to be the chief of the 1st Armored Division's Medical Operations Center. At what point did you decide you wanted to be a, a, a 70 hotel, an operator? And what drew you to the operational side of Medical Service Corps, rather than working in one of the principally hospital-based AOCs like 70 Charlie, which was my former AOC? Good question. As During my first company command at McDonald Army Community Hospital, Fort Eustis, I was on the path to becoming a either a patient administration officer or a 70 Alpha, which is uh, what I wanted to, to really look at or really pursue, um, especially being in the hospital setting. Uh, ironically, I also had thought about the, the Charlie, the 70 Charlie. I think it was at Syracuse University. Sure. So, and I said, wow, okay, that would get me back to my original school of, of <laughs> going down that lane. And so those three AOCs is what I was looking at as a, a young lieutenant. I was you know, blessed by the, with the opportunity of taking that first company command as a first lieutenant. And it was right before the commander had selected me to take the command, I was serving as the adjutant, and as Desert Storm was kicking off, he said, well, before I put you in the command, Scotty, I need you to be the uh, chief of plans, training, mobilization, and security, which was a 70 hotel job. And he said, I need you to go over there, work that job there, and then I'm going to put you in company command. And so, you know, again, I wasn't really, you know, didn't know what the 70 hotel area was. And as I went down there, he said, well, Scotty, you're the best prepared to do this also, by the way, because you're coming from the 194th Seventh Armor Brigade. You know, you have that tactical experience, and then you have that leadership style that could get us, keep us together. And so when I went down and took that job, I was bitten by the bug. And I was like, wow, 70 Hotel is, is what I want to, want to do. It was, you know, the excitement, the op-tempo, uh, the responsibility, and then conducting the operations, in this case, not only for the hospital, but for the entire installation of Fort Eustis as it was going through the mobilization and deployments basically blew me away. And at that point, I said, I want to be a 70 hotel. So I started pursuing that, was selected for the pilot course of the Combined Logistics Officer Advanced Course, CLOAC, okay. Okay. and that further uh, reinforced the operations, now multifunctional support operations of the 70 hotel branch itself. And taking that second command, you again just reinforced from the operations perspective my desire to be a 70 hotel. And then that's the path I pursued as I took on the medical planner job at 3ID and then coming, uh, coming back after doing an instructor at Fort Sam in the 1st Armored Division uh, in the Chief DMOC. And, you know, again, doing the medical planning and at the division level and working for some great leaders like then Major General Casey and Brigadier General Odierno and Lieutenant Colonel Nadia West and, you know, all superb leaders who went on to be our, our senior leaders in the Army uh, at the three- and four-star level. But that opportunity to do the 70 Hotel job with such great leaders who empowered me basically, again, just said there's no other AOC for me but to be a 70 Hotel because I really enjoyed it. So just very briefly, an armored division 
is about what, 20,000 people? Roughly, yes. And so what were you doing? What does it mean to be a medical planner for, for, a, for an armored division? So for, for that one, as the chief of the Division Medical Operations Center, I worked for the division surgeon. And the division surgeon at the time was, again, our, our Surgeon General now, Lieutenant General West, who was then Lieutenant Colonel West, and I was then uh, Major Dingle. And so we did all of the medical planning and operations for that entire divisional footprint, those 20,000 soldiers. So if anything happened, we deployed, we're responsible from start to finish, the medical planning, the medical operating, and the medical executing, providing combat health support to those 20,000 soldiers in that division uh, itself, whether in garrison or deployed environment. So after your tour with the 1st Armored Division, you were selected for a school called Command and General Staff College in residence, which is pretty unusual for a medical service corps officer. And, and not only that, you were selected f- for further uh, military education in a program called the, uh, the Army's School of Advanced Military Studies, which I think is even, even more unusual. Uh, how many medical service corps officers get to go to SAMS in any given year? It's not very many, is it? No, very. I was the uh, I was uh, again blessed to be the first medical service officer to be selected for the Advanced Military Studies program, or otherwise known as the School of Advanced Military Studies. And as the first medical service corps officer to go through the course, it was a phenomenal experience. The SAMS cadre also, and Colonel Greer, realized the importance of having medical planners involved in the School of Advanced Military Studies, and it thus opened up the next year for three medical service corps officers to attend, and then the following year, another officer, and then the following year, another. Right now, we have about 12 active duty SAMS officers in the United States Army Medical Department. We've had a total of about 13 to have gone through the program since my initial uh, matriculation through there in 2002. Phenomenal honor and, again, just a tremendous experience to, you know, to to get through SAM. So it's not very many. We're trying to get more, but it's a very, very, very tough school to get into, and it's not guaranteed that we'll get in, but we're trying. Okay. And is it true that, that graduates are called JEDI? Uh, that is true. So the graduates, it was Jedi Knights because uh, after the year of intense training and, you know, you feel like we, you've been in Star Wars and been trained by Yoda with the, the magic of critical thinking and the, the art of operating and planning across the spectrum for one entire year, philosophy, you know, again, it's just an amazing year. So when you come out, you know, they have invested and deposited so much into you uh, to make you be a, a, a operational, strategic, uh, critical thinker, uh, planner, and operator that, you know, they're referred to as Jedi Knights. Yeah, and, and that is, is, that's a phrase used affectionately, I believe, in the Army because the, the graduates of the school are regarded with such uh, respect because it is such a challenging school. Absolutely. But, but you, so you, after you graduated from SAMS, you went on to the 18th Airborne Corps. Folks would know it better as the parent unit for the 82nd and the 101st. 
And there you worked a series of plans and operational positions. In 2002, you deployed to Afghanistan as a planner in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. And then in 2004, you deployed again to Iraq in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Can you talk about what it was like to plan and coordinate the delivery of health services in those combat zones? Uh, it was a tremendous honor. The, the first deployment to Afghanistan, which was, you know, pretty much within the year after I had graduated from SAMS, I deployed in the, in the position of a ground combat planner. And so in the SAMS world, um, as that Jedi Knight, you know, they, they teach you to do combat plans and operations, logistical plans and operations, not just medical plans. And so in the capacity, they did not look at me as a medical officer. My boss, then Colonel Hodges, you know, was like, hey, you know, now General Hodges is like, Scotty, you know, you're a combat planner. You're, you're rolling with us. You know, let's go. Okay. You're not a medical planner. Okay. And so uh, there, I was responsible for doing the ground combat planning for phase three operations, which were the PRTs, the provincial reconstruction teams. That is the construct that basically governs and how Afghanistan or that theater uh, is set up now. And so, again, a huge honor to just to, to be the planner uh, in charge of that while I was there. And it was just a phenomenal experience and phenomenal exposure for that entire planning job. When I went to Iraq, that is when I did the medical plan. Okay. And as the, the, the surgeon's office for uh, combined the uh, multinational core Iraq surgeon's office. And so there we were responsible for the entire multinational core or the theater of Iraq, all the medical plans and operations. And again, just another tremendous experience, you know, again, having already worked up in the G3 as a ground combat planner, coming back after being an EXO executive officer, for the Area Support Medical Battalion, a lot of my same relationships were still there on staff. And so I was able to to do or inculcate the medical plans uh, into the 18th Airborne Corps and the Multinational Corps Iraq uh, in manners where we were not able to do that before. And so it was just, again, a great, great experience and, again, another great team-building uh, opportunity and effort to be a part of. With Iraq, you were uh, working with other countries' forces, not just U.S. forces. Exactly, exactly. Wow. In both. In, okay. in, oh, in Afghanistan, both. Okay. it was all of our, okay. again, NATO allies and partners uh, that we were working with. Wow. What did you learn from working with other countries' militaries and, and military planners and leaders? You know, it was interesting. So one thing that I learned was that, that we, we have to kind of be inclusive. Sometimes we can be like a lumpy soup um, and not really blend that it took an intentional effort for all the staff to make sure that we just didn't do it our way, that we were keeping our partners and our allies also on the radar and incorporated into our plans and synchronized them into our operations. Because in, in, in our mindset, you know, we just, we just, okay, we got it. We just run out and we just do it, you know, the U.S. way. Right. And, you know, again, lesson that I learned was that, okay, wait a minute, we got to take into account our partners you know, in our multinational forces as we're doing these plans. And, you know, sometimes with the language barriers and the different methodologies of executing uh, tactical operations, it, it presented some, not difficulties, but just some hurdles that we just had to clear so that we can make sure that we were interoperable and synchronized in executing the mission. So you came back from Iraq and you were assigned to the office of the Army Surgeon General. 
working as a planner and later as executive officer for the Healthcare Operations Office, or the G3, as it's referred to, one of the organizations that actually reports to you now. Why does the Army Surgeon General have a Healthcare Operations Office, and what does the G3 do? The Healthcare Operations Office and the G357 basically is the, the engine, basically, that runs the command. You know, so the operations deal with everything that, that, that happens on the day-to-day execution of the healthcare mission, whether operation planning or execution or healthcare delivery in our hospitals, clinical operations, or patient care integrating, making sure things go smooth, or delivery of dental care. Those are all the things that fall under the G357 at the macro level. When you start getting down into the weeds, when you talk Army medicine, it's the G357 that basically are, that touches every aspect of the delivery of Army medicine. And then there's much more to just delivering that Army medicine, which is an operation. It comes into every aspect from the entry to the exit. You know, it all falls under the, the, the G357 or the operations, which is why the operations is such a large organization in any type of, of, of unit because of the, the magnitude and scope of responsibility of execution, the mission itself. So while you were at OTSG, the Office of the Surgeon General, as we, we call it OTSG in the Army, you were selected for battalion command, and you commanded the 261st Multifunctional Medical Battalion. What was the difference between being a company commander and a battalion commander? As a company command, you know, you you basically had about 80 uh, soldiers in your scope of responsibility as you're just executing the the medical mission of conserving the fighting strength or providing health care and combat. As a battalion commander, now the scope of responsibility expands. And so now instead of just having a company, you could have anywhere from uh, five to 12 companies, you know, uh, dealing with thousand to, to four thousand plus uh, soldiers underneath your command and control and your responsibility so as that battalion commander now the scope spreads out you know and so now you have different units whether it's a forward surgical team or a dental capability or preventive medicine uh, or medical logistics or optometry all of those type of different medical units will fall underneath the mission command of that battalion itself. And so the scope of responsibility expanded tremendously as a battalion commander. And then with that, it's not just the mission itself, but it gets into the the number of soldiers and family members that you are responsible for that health and welfare. A tremendous opportunity and a very exciting job. Being a battalion commander is significant, and it's often a make-or-break assignment for officers, and most officers never get selected to do battalion command at all. What surprised you most about your experience as a battalion commander? You know, again, I think it always goes back to leadership, you know, the lessons uh, that I learned. And in in this case, with battalion command, uh, being removed from the company level, you know, because now you have company commanders that are engaged in the soldiers, the battalion commander is a little more removed, and you don't uh, have the day-to-day impact at the, the actual executing level in those companies. But yet one of the greatest things that I learned was that even as a battalion commander, you know, one of the greatest influences that the leader has is on the climate of the organization, on the morale, 
which all goes back to that esprit de corps and that pride in the unit that can build and create and, and develop into a tremendous synergy. And when I, you know, you know, my priority is always when I go into command, of course, is, you know, mission first, but soldiers always. But as we execute the mission, I always want to build that team, that team mentality that I learned as a platoon leader and that, when you build the team, that you can still have fun. And so I learned as a battalion commander that, that, that even as a battalion, we can have an esprit de corps and a fun and, and a unit pride that can be beyond compare and imagination. And that's what we did in the Spearhead Battalion at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and had a tremendous fun time. And, you know, as the soldiers just did some amazing things in support of our country and our nation. So you were a after your a successful battalion command, you got a chance to be a brigade commander for the Army Medical Recruiting Brigade. What does what does that do? What did you? What is oh, that? Uh, yeah. What is the role of that organization? The, the Medical Recruiting Brigade is responsible for the recruitment of all of the healthcare providers into the United States Army. And so, again, all of your doctors, dentists, nurses, every medical professional AOC, that's what the Medical Recruiting Brigade does. And so the brigade has the footprint of literally the entire globe and world, even including internationally, and we are engaging the healthcare professionals who are already physicians, as well as the students matriculating through the various colleges and medical schools with aspirations to be doctors. And our job is to recruit them to come into the military itself. One thing unique about the Medical Recruiting Brigade uh, also is that the mission also had the, the chaplain recruiting mission. So I was also responsible oh. for recruiting all of the Army chaplains into the military, again, which the footprint for the chaplain recruiting is the entire globe. Wherever there are seminaries and wherever there are professional clergy, the chaplain recruiters are engaging, recruiting, telling the Army story. I also had the uh, Special Operation Recruiting Battalion mission, which we were recruiting inside or inside the service, the military, the Army, all the special forces, the warrant officers, the rangers, the the explosive ordnance folks, and all those and all those specialties to come from the army ranks to convert over to those different specialties. So it was a tremendous job, and again, we had a tremendous experience over there. That's neat. Is is like special forces normally a part of the uh, recruit the arm medical recruiting brigades? portfolio or was that more because of who you were well it was when i took over the over the brigade i was the first command select list brigade commander in 2010 to take the brigade and at the time it was unique circumstances where they they needed to place it under the, the certain leadership in this case it was under the medical recruiting brigade and again when i was there again we just had you know, the leadership felt comfortable with keeping that mission under me with the special operations recruiting as well as the chaplains oh, interesting after your first brigade command you went back for more military schooling at the National War College. After War College, you came back to the G3 again, and you were selected for a second brigade command, this time as the commander of the 30th Medical Brigade, which is located in Germany. What does a medical brigade do, and what is the mission of the 30th Medical Brigade specifically? A, med a medical brigade, again, provides the combat health support to its supported unit or organization. In this case, 
the 30th Medical Brigade is assigned in Germany to the United States Army USER. So the 30th Medical Brigade supports United States Army USER as well as United States Army Africa USERAF, which is also in their footprint or their area of responsibility. So brigades will be assigned to area of responsibility to provide the medical support and planning for that specific areas. The 30th Medical Brigade, as you mentioned, is in Simbach, Germany, in the Kaiserslautern area. And again, we provide the support to, you know, all of Europe and USER, the European forces that are deployed over there. Uh, unique about the 30th Medical Brigade is that it's also a tremendous, a tremendous relationship with also the NATO forces and our allied partners. And so, again, just a, another tremendous opportunity that whose scope just touched every NATO country, the allies, and uh, just experiences just of a lifetime as you now deal with NATO operations and all the stuff and excitement over in Europe. Fascinating. So all of Europe, all of Africa. So if any, any activity, any, any medical planning that had to be done for either of those theaters, that was, that was up to you. For the brigade, yep. We, the brigade. we basically were the theaters, right? The, the surgeons that are on those, those Army Service Component Command elements, in this case, United States Army Europe and United States Army Africa, they're the ones overall responsible for the planning piece. The 30th Medburg Brigade, we were the force provider that would do the executing uh, of all those missions in support of those oh, two okay. footprints. Okay. So in June of 2015, you came back to the Office of the Surgeon General to be the Deputy Chief of Staff, G357. And I'm assuming at this point you had been promoted to Brigadier General? I, I was still promotable. Okay, uh, promotable. The Surgeon General pulled to get back here. Okay. And how many Medical Service Corps generals are there? Well, right now we... With the selects that just came on the last list, we will have five Medical Service Corps uh, general officers on active duty, which is a, a phenomenal historical high. I just I ask that question because I want listeners to realize it's not a there aren't a lot of you out there. So five five out yeah. of the uh, in the entire army that are Medical Service Corps. So it's a pretty unique uh, thing. Uh, so you had worked. So we talked a little bit about the G three. Uh, a few minutes ago, you you mentioned how broad the scope is. How do you go about organizing the planning for all of those functions? I mean, you, you were talking about everything from providing dental care in a in a fixed facility, a, a, a brick and mortar hospital in the United States, to providing health care for deployed troops in combat. How do you manage all of those different missions? It, you know, it goes back to the very first lesson that uh, my first sergeant taught me, and it gets with team building. You, you have to have empowered, capable, tremendous leaders that have the oversight over the various operations, directorates, divisions, and branches, you know, which is, again, one thing that's just phenomenal, as you know, about the Army experience, because, again, we develop leaders, and as they are developed through the job-developing positions, they grow into leaders who are capable of executing their area of expertise. And in this case here, with a G357 that has such a large scope of responsibility, I have a tremendous team of teams, you know, uh, of leaders 
Um, and so each of my directors, which I also charge them to identify the talent and the leaders to be the division and the branch chiefs, you know, and again, and we have a lot of help from the Human Resource Commands, which provides the Surgeon General's Office with the best talent because this is the strategic synergy location for Army, Army Medicine. And so, again, I, I just have a tremendous team of leaders. Uh, we have a great team that is, that is synchronized that allows us to execute an amazing level of, of operations and plans and responses on behalf of the Surgeon General, as well as all the healthcare beneficiaries and populations that access Army Medicine. Can you give a, a couple of quick examples of the kind of some specific plans that you're currently working on or, or operations that you're currently uh, overseeing so that people can really get a sense of the scope that you're handling? Well, you know, one, one of the big ones, which basically is on the, the major radar of, of our, our Congress, our Senate, and our, our leaders, is the access to care. And so when you talk access to care, which means the beneficiary population, so those who are able to access and use uh, Army medicine or the military health system itself, our hospitals and, and receive care and be outsourced, that access to care and how well that is operating or how slow it is operating or how long it may take an appointment to get done, but the overall access to care mission is one of our uh, key points and priorities that we're really trying to work the planning and fix and streamline to ensure that that beneficiary population has the best care. So that's one of our major plans that we're doing. Okay. Um, another one, the, the, the alcohol and substance abuse program, which primarily or previously belonged over to the Army G1, substance abuse and providing the care intervention and all that other stuff, and the counseling, that program is getting ready to come back over to Army Medicine. So another plan that, that we are working in and transition is for Army Medicine to resume the oversight of that, that alcohol substance abuse uh, program to support those soldiers and beneficiaries who use those services also. Another one is surgical. So we, we're also working not just the fixed facility uh, surgery capability, but also a expeditionary surgical capability, almost like a forward surgical team. And so when you talk the uh, professional filler system is what we call it, when we take our healthcare professionals out of our fixed facilities and we provide them in uh, field units or units that go deploy combat support hospitals for surgical teams who provide the care to those divisions in combat and forward on a battlefield or in the theater of operation, those come from those fixed facilities, those professional fillers to help round out the unit. So we're also working some initiatives where from our, our medical command, our, our, the Surgeon General's perspective, the medical command, our hospitals are providing those outside-of-the-box surgical capabilities that can help be force multipliers to the joint force in itself. And again, that's just three of probably just hundreds of, of plans that, that we're working across almost every area uh, of responsibility when it comes to executing the military health system in Army medicine. Those are great examples. What goals do you have for your organization? So looking at, looking at the 357 as an organization, what, do you, what are you pushing them to, to achieve? 
I see us, you know, to simply put it as the the four one one nine one one organization of the command and of the army when it comes to army medicine, because you know we we want folks to turn to us for the information because we have to have the operations and the plans to execute, and then also as the nine one one. Uh, operators also because in the event of emergencies and crisis, whether if it's the Zika virus or whatever it may be, we're the one, the first responders who have to respond not just with the planning and the forecasting, but also in the executing and the ensuring that we are returning those infected or impacted by whatever it may be uh, back to full deployable health and able and ability to do their mission. And so I see the G357 again as the 411-911 synergizers to make sure that everything is synchronized in accordance with the commanding general, Lieutenant General West, our Surgeon General and MedCom Commander, with her vision and her mission, you know, again, to just continue to be the, the world premier healthcare organization as we provide health care support to the United States Army. What do you worry most about in your role? What kind of keeps, you know, when you're laying in bed and staring at the ceiling, what keeps you from sleeping at night as the, uh, well, as the G357? You know, I'm a, I'm a triple-A type personality, so my, my mind is always running to making sure that there's no ball that's dropped. And so, again, even though we have a tremendous team, there's just so much that we do. And, and, and the thing that I, you know, worry about is that to making sure that every last one of those things or those plates are still spinning on that stick, you know, and, and not to allow one of those plates to be forsaken because our attention is drawn to some other priority as dictated by the mission or our leadership or whatever focus is directed to us by our civilian leadership, that those plates don't drop. And so, you know, I'm always thinking about, well, okay, in my, you know, smallest branch section or department, you know, are they maintaining that plate spinning? And there any anything that we need to emphasize to make sure that they're getting their support, that that plate is not going to fall off that stick and keep spinning. What do your non-Army Medical Department colleagues least understand about the Army Medical Department? What do you, so, so when you talk to armored officers or infantry officers, what do you, what do you find yourself correcting about their impressions of the, of the Army Medical Department? The, the scope of the mission, the, the, the enormous magnitude of responsibilities from a point of injury on a battlefield to the fixed facility and rehabilitation or wounded warrior support, you know, or a center for the intrepid, which is, again, re reassembling and putting our, our, our soldiers, our warriors back together and making them with, you know, giving them the ability to, to, to be deployable and to remain in the game and on the army team and, and, and even just being able to, to maintain you know, the daily living capabilities that, that we often forsaking. But, you know, just, it's just the enormous magnitude of what we do, and oftentimes they don't, they don't see that. But, but when they're exposed to it, the capacity, you know, now starts to come into their understanding. The capabilities start to come into their understanding, and it often is, is too much for them. They're like, okay, wow, that's you, you, you amen, guys. Just have too much, and you guys can have it. Um, you know, 
General Pollard, one of our former Surgeon Generals, you know, said it best when we went through the Walter Reed incidents and, and she talked about, we stood up these warrior transition commands and, you know, they sent over infantry officers and armor officers to be the commanders within our medical units, which were historically done by, you know, our medical service corps officers and other AMED leaders. And during the first change of command, I sat there and I said, you know, wow, ma'am, I, I just realized, you know, all this planning we're doing, we're giving it over to these armor infantrymen who don't understand army medicine, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of angry, not right, because we're throwing all these resources and making them successful by giving them three times of what we gave to our AMED company commanders and, and leaders in charge of medical hold units and getting warriors back to you know, back to fit and through a process of medical evaluation. And she said to me these words. She said, you know, Scotty, don't don't worry about that. She said, because what this is going to do, it's going to show that that armor officer, that infantry officer who does not stand Army medicine, the magnitude and the enormous responsibility that we do each day as health care providers and teammates. And it's going to open their eyes and show the Army something that they often take forsaken and overlook. And, Matt, she was so clairvoyant. That's exactly what it has done. And that's the biggest thing that we face is just showing them or that challenge to them they don't understand is teaching them about the enormous magnitude and impact of what we do on a day-to-day basis. Well, that was a, that was a pretty deep insight. I think I would have reacted the same as you. <laughs> Yeah, I was hot. I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, let's transition and talk about uh, specifically about leadership. What would you say is your leadership philosophy? Oh, wow. My, my leadership philosophy is, is center pro- professional leadership excellence and synergistic teamwork um, in everything that we do. That professional leadership excellence in each and everyone's response is everyone's responsibility as we execute whatever it is that we do, whether if it's the civilian contractor, the, the DA civilian, or the, the military officer or NCO, that we have a responsibility to maintain our bearing because of the leadership that is inherent into our various positions. And we execute that with professional leadership excellence, the impact would just be exponentially across the beneficiary population, across the service itself and the military health system and all the joint uh, services sisters itself, you know, and that's where professional leadership excellence comes into play. But the synergistic teamwork is also so important because in everything that we do, regardless of the job, that is not about one person, but it's about building the team to accomplish the mission. And when you have a synergistic team with all those forces just 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 magnifying the effort synchronized with the synergy that just makes it that much more explosive and that's that just blows it out the water. And and with that my my priorities are you know personally are my faith, my my family, my finances and fun. You know, that fun impacts every last thing that we do. We we have that professional leadership excellence a synergistic teamwork that we're building as we do it. But as we do it, we're going to have fun and a camaraderie that makes this the premier place that we want to be, which also builds a pride in what we do as we execute the AMEN mission, which in a nutshell, you know, is my, my, my quick philosophy. Okay. What are the characteristics and behaviors of a good leader, and how do you aspire to those yourself? 
my the, the the two most important to me is is servant leadership. Okay. Um, servant leadership, and and I, I say that because oftentimes when folks think of leadership, they think of the king. You know, the king ruling over the kingdom or the queen ruling over the kingdom and, and the kingdom and the queendom bowing down to the king. Well, that's not actually correct. You know, I, I see that those that are empowered in leadership positions, it's just the opposite. The king or the queen has the responsibility to make sure that everyone that is under their authority, that is within the king or that queendom, that their needs and their their, their responsibilities, their, their functions, their requirements, their resources, that everything is met. And so now the king is now the servant to the to the kingdom. You know, the queen is servant to the queendom. And then servant leadership has us putting them first to make sure that the team or the family, the organization can accomplish its mission, which means that 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 servant leadership serving others, regardless of 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 the position, the title, you know, the level that we are serving them with a, a tenacity, a, a passion to, to empower them to able to do their mission, to able to accomplish their jobs, or to able to fix their problems. And so that servant leadership is so important to me when it comes to leadership characteristics and behavior. You know, and then after that, everything just falls into place because with that type of dedication and loyalty you know, and ethical correctness that that there won't be any wavering or any violations of a UCMJ or leadership files because we are now not thinking about self that selfless service you know is what what is driving us we're now thinking about the team and others which again makes that what I think and love about the army so special because it deals with leadership and in, and in my view it's a servant leadership to make sure that the team is taken care of and when the team is taken care of it will and accomplish any and every mission, and we remain as the premier army in this globe and on this earth. What do you look for when you're evaluating leaders? The integrity, the competence, the, the knowledge, the ability to lead a team, the teamwork, to name a few. Those stick okay. out. You know, okay. Then others will come. You know, are they loyal to to the team and to the mission, the the technical and technical competence? Because you got to have and and build the trust, you know, within the organization itself. You know, you you have to be ethically and ethically and morally astute and correct with what you're doing, you know. And those type of characteristics jump out to me, because again, you know, there are also you know some some bad leaders out there that just have the opposite, which are focused on self which, again, to me, is often very readily seen and has a negative impact on organization and teams. What leadership counsel do you most often give to young leaders? Oh, wow. You know, it's funny. So it changes over the years. And so now I, I, I can say it's, 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 it's three things. One, don't lose your bearing. Don't lose your bearing. And that's one as leaders that I, I basically push to everybody, you know, and I normally give them a, a, a ball bearing when I do it. You know, everybody that works for me has a ball <laughs> bearing to them. And that bearing, I tell them, is symbolic of our leadership. It's, 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 it's symbolic of, 
of of your military bearing. It's it's symbolic of your professional, your mental, your 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 spiritual, your integrity, your it's, it's of everything that you do. You know that bearing is perfectly round to remind you and us that that we're not perfect. The bearing is round, but we're not not perfectly symmetrical where we're not going to make mistakes. And as small as that bearing is, it takes an effort to hold it in your hands. And that's the same type of effort we have to approach our jobs each day as we strive for excellence. We can't lose our bearing. You know, at times, you're going to drop our bearing. You know, we, we may get get quick-tempered, you know, but we have to realize that other people are always watching you. And when you drop that bearing and you say that wrong thing, you've now impacted that soldier, that civilian, that leader, or even that person that's looking to you as that service member or DA civilian or a government employee adversely as, as a leader because they saw you to do the wrong thing or to say the wrong thing. So you can't lose your bearing because it's a fishbowl effect that they see you and as a leader, everything is magnified. And so you're going to have an impression on people. So you got to do the right impression. Don't don't lose that bearing. You can't lose that bearing. And then you know that I'll break it down, and each one has uh, a different meaning. You know, the B for me is believe in yourself and God, and E is endure tough times. A is accept responsibility. R is remain unconquered. Don't you quit. I is identified with others who are excelling and is never quit, and G is give to others. Don't lose your bearing. And then also the thing is like a bearing itself individually is symbolic, but the bearing when used with other bearings is able to, to, to reduce friction, and you're able to, to move things and glide heavy and move heavy weights and display stuff, which goes back to, again, that first lesson of teamwork. Bearing individually is good, but yet it takes a team of bearings to be able to move that weight and displace that that problem. The second thing is I talk about is important versus urgent. There was an article written by Colonel Bloom, a retired brigade commander at the end of his career. He said that um, as you go through your career, you cannot forget the important things as you build your military success. Your, your, your health, your family, your loved ones, your children, the team itself. So oftentimes, us as leaders and officers, we're so driven by the mission that we take care of the things that are important. And then having just recently buried my, my father in Arlington National Cemetery last month and lost my mother two years ago, um, you don't have that. Thank you. You don't have that time to recapture. We spend a great amount of our time with experiences in the United States Army of traveling the world, seeing great things in great places. And then as we're building our own families and being taken away from home, we often forget about mom and dad. And you cannot, you can't forget about them. You got to call them and, and take care of them while they're still here because you can build your military career and, you know, focus on those urgent things and forgetting the important things like loved ones and health. And that's what, that's what Colonel Bloom wrote about. And I often, I, I use that as one of, you know, my pillars that I communicate to leaders that have fun, you know, as you are focusing on the success of your military career, but don't forget the things that are important in your life, your health, 
your your spouse, your children, your family, your loved ones, mom and dad, build your success, but don't let that success take you away from the things that are important. You know, and then the last one is always give back. You know, build the bench, mentor, coach, and teach. It's a responsibility inherent in with what we do in our various capacities. All this great training that we receive is for us not to just keep it to self, but who are we bringing up and teaching behind you and inspiring the young next generation uh, of soldiers and heroes to serve our great nation. Well, that, that is a uh, I love I love the bearing metaphor. I'm I'm gonna definitely have to write that out because I I think that's really great. And I know I've kept you. I know you have something you have to go do. So uh, I think that's a great place to leave off at. Thank you so much for your time today. This was great. Uh, Mark, thank you. And and ironically, you know, I got to run up here now because we're doing our. Uh our leadership lecture series. And so each month in part of my professional development to our G357 team, I bring in um, uh, senior leaders for about an hour to tell their story. You know, give us a leadership lecture and, and tell us, one, your story, you know, your background, and then what is your leadership philosophy so that we can deposit it into our leadership DNA. And then we do that after, like this morning, we had our Spree de Corps run. So we ran the uh, Woodrow Wilson Bridge this morning from Virginia to Maryland. And, and you know, it's run at your own pace, and we run in, run in teams and with groups, and those that walk, walk. And we, we do a different place each month, whether monuments or the National Cemetery, for us to learn about what it is, but also to build teams. And so this is our, our team-building day here. So i got to run up here and open this up with the extra series. Well, thank you again so much. Okay, Mark, it was a, it was a, it was a great honor, and uh, you know, thank you for, for having me. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.